This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, one of the greatest concerts the world has never seen. If you caught the movie When We Were Kings, you might recall that the championship fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman wasn't the only big event going on in Kinshasa Zaire in the fall of 1974. There was also a dazzling music festival that brought together some of the giants of soul, funk, blues, salsa, and African pop. That concert has been the stuff of legend for 35 years, but despite the existence of lots of film footage, it's gone mostly unseen by the general public. Well, now it's finally making its way to the big screen, and we'll hear all about it in just a moment. And now on to part one of today's show, The Other Rumble in the Jungle. We ain't been to Kinshasa. We don't know what to expect. We're going to be met by a country that expected a fight. Instead, they're going to get the greatest musical performance there ever was. Well, actually, Kinshasa got both, a historic fight and an incredible concert. That was music producer Stuart Levine, who organized the music festival, along with his friend, the trumpeter Hugh Masekela. Together they assembled some of the greatest names in African, African African-American, and Afro-Latin music. Picture James Brown, B.B. King, Miriam Makeba, The Spinners, Bill Withers, Taboulé Rochereau, Celia Cruz, and the Fania All-Stars, just to name a few, all on one stage, all pretty much at the top of their games. And there to get it all on film was a team of talented cinematographers, led by the director Leon Gast. But for decades, all that fabulous film footage has been locked away in vaults. Gast offered a few glimpses of the concert in his film When We Were Kings, but that's about it. Now, at long last, the Zaire 74 concert gets a fuller treatment in a new documentary by Jeffrey Levy Hinty, who worked as an editor on When We Were Kings. His new film is called Soul Power, and it features some spectacular performances. Today, we're going to hear an interview with Jeffrey Levy Hinty, along with some clips from the film, including this one, James Brown performing the movie's title song. Well, the question I suppose everybody is asking is, who sat on this footage for roughly 35 years? Yeah. For the first 10 years, it was really about litigation and dealing with the bankruptcy of the production company. Uh, at the end of that process, Leon Gast, who was the director of When We Were Kings and uh, was the on-site director, um, ended up with in possession and ownership of the footage. Um, he took about another 10 years um, working on a film always trying to bring together um, the fight and the music festival, which 
he's a marvelous filmmaker, but that is a task that is, I would say, well nigh impossible. So at the end of that process, uh, it was decided to make the fight movie, When We Were Kings. There was some talk, and I was very interested in doing a concert film or DVD or use that material, but of course, you know, Kings had just come out, it was very successful. This you, is 1996. Correct. Um, and you don't, you know, make one film right after another unless it's planned, and of course the distributor didn't want to see a competing film, so now it went back into hibernation again. And as it happened, very uh, sadly, and indeed, uh, when James Brown passed away, uh, January 25th, 2006, the thoughts that I'd always gone through my mind of doing something with it really were catalyzed. And I said, you know, this is really ridiculous. This is bordering on, you know, cinematic malfeasance. Cultural crime. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. You know, it's really the, the concert, this music, these personalities. I mean, they belong in a way to all of us. You know, they're part of our, our common cultural currency. And knowing that the material was there and it wasn't being used and that, you know, probably wouldn't have been if I wouldn't have stepped in. Um, so that's the one side. The other side is, you know, it was a... Uh, um, I love it, you know, and it's a, it was a great opportunity as well. And it finally, I'm very happy that I finally straightened myself out enough <laughs> to take the initiative. Now, Leon Gast originally went there to film the concert, the festival. Isn't that right? I mean, wasn't he correct. brought on by uh, Stuart Levine and Hugh Masekela to film the festival, the music exactly. festival? Um, but he was also intending to film the fight, and it was I sort see. of the whole. It was all a single event. Mm -hmm. Of course, when the events separated, that's where the great difficulty emerged because. The, the connection between the two just became uh, distended. So we ended up with When We Were Kings, which was mostly about the fight, and had these tantalizing snippets of the concert, uh, bits of James Brown, uh, a little tiny bit of Miriam McCabe. Who else was in there? There were some of the um, percussion, the spinners were there. The spinners, yeah. yeah. And, and those of us who love that music um, were driven crazy by that film, I'm going to say, because we knew there was this amazing you know, sort of mother load of one of the great concerts of the era just, just sitting there. Now, how, when did you become aware of all that footage? Well, really at the time of creating When We Were Kings, when uh -huh. I was working as an editor, I wasn't aware of all of it, but I was aware of a lot of it. But, you know, we had a very particular task. So you would, you know, it's like, oh, here's a three-hour James Brown piece. Well, we just need one thing, and <laughs> let's just do that, you know. Um, so I didn't, like, really get into it until uh, 2007, where I... Transferred all the material, and I sat down and watched it and listened to all the recordings, and was just, you know, overwhelmed in the best possible sense of, 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 of the wealth that was there. Leon Gast had put together a team that included some remarkable people. I mean, Al Mazel's one of the great documentary filmmakers of all time, and really one of the great concert filmmakers of all time. Oh, yeah. He was spectacular. And, and Kevin Keating, Paul Goldsmith, Robert Young, those were the key people. There were a bunch of other people, but they were... Uh, less experienced and, and less dynamic. And the interesting thing, the the small side note for the cinephiles is that the sound man for Albert Mazel's wasn't his brother as it usually was, but was Ed Lockman, who is a very uh, wonderful DP now. So somehow he got wrangled into doing <laughs> sound, which is kind of indicative, you think, of how things were unfolding at that time. Now, um, I got to say that both the visuals uh, on the evidence of the film that you've put together, Soul Power, and the sound are excellent. Yeah. I mean, this is a rare case of a concert film where everything seems to be just flawless. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a true testament to analog 
you know, <laughs> capture. Um, it, it was film and it was amazingly stable. It wasn't stored well at all, but yet um, had very little, if any, deterioration, to be honest. Um, and the sound was all analog sound in perfect condition. Um, the 16-track, two-inch, you know, Music Master recordings, they were a little bit um, crunchy. They had uh, not fared as well, but the, well, we were able to remaster them perfectly. Uh-huh. So it really just goes to, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not a Luddite. I certainly take advantage of all the new opportunities we have, but, you know, we shouldn't just th- throw them out because there's this new thing that, you know, the digital revolution is coming. And most things digital, uh, frankly, the quality is very poor. It's just highly convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we're extremely lucky that they took that approach. Your film includes a lot of concert footage, but it also tells the story in a way of the build-up to the concert, the logistics behind it. Yes. Um, I would have thought that shipping a lot of the uh, top soul and funk bands from America uh, to Kinshasa Zaire, I mean, in a autocratic uh, Central African nation, would have been a logistical nightmare. Now, the people in your film seem oddly cool and collected. What's going yes, on there? I mean, wasn't are, there chaos behind the scenes? There, there was absolutely chaos. I put in as much in that I could get the audience to bear. Uh, my first cut, for instance, had literally an hour more of just these machinations, which are, you know, b- brilliantly absurd and comic. And, you know, you'd feel their palpable frustration, but particularly like a Stuart Levine you know, he has such a joie de vivre that even though, you know, they can't, things aren't happening, they have to overcome these huge uh, issues, um, he still had like a lightness to him because he he knew, you know, it is it is about the joy of sharing this music ultimately. But uh, yeah, you know, um, there'll be more in the DVD extras. There's some brilliant scenes of just highlighting the absurdity and difficulty. Well, you raise a question. Um, there is some very, very lovely concert footage in this film, but it's obviously probably the tip of the iceberg. It was a three-day festival. Will the extras include more of the live performances? Yeah, my intention is yes, particularly of um, two acts which didn't make it into the movie uh, to my great kind of uh, sadness, I have to say, and it was my my choice. I take responsibility, but um, Sister Sledge was there. Mm-hmm. they very, very young Sister Sledge, and they're in the movie, and they just have the most amazing energy, and I just couldn't get one of their cues, one of their songs, to work within the the body of the movie. You have a rehearsal scene, though. Correct. They're rehearsing with their uh, manager, Buddy Allen, and they pop up here and there, you know. For people in the know, if you look beyond sort of the main characters, you'll see a lot. Like, Etta James is on stage. Uh, she never performed. You know, there's all right. sorts of things um, happening. Also, the uh, the Pointer Sisters were there. And I sort of had a similar trajectory where I couldn't get that to work. And that's absolutely essential. The the difficulty, of course, is the uh, finding somebody to pay the uh, synchronization uh, <laughs> costs but, uh, for the music. Uh, and then there's this James Brown. I, I know I have a lot of James Brown, but he does this rendition of Try Me, which is so moving and so um, it's just so amazingly performed. And it's basically captured all in one single shot with a camera. And so elegant, and I, that has to be there. Well, before we get to playing a little bit of the music from the concert itself, I'd like to play a little clip of music that took place um, offstage. And that is on the flight over, uh, where they packed all of these musicians onto one plane. Very, very long plane trip, I imagine. Oh, yes. And the cameramen were there. Oh, yeah. And they caught Celia Cruz, the Fania All-Stars, Johnny Pacheco on flute, Yomotoro on guitar, 
B.B. Uh, King joining in a little bit, all jamming on this plane in, in just a wonderful scene, and I want to play a little bit of that. Hey, let me hear some more music. Who filmed that scene aboard this crowded plane in which some of the world's greatest musicians were just living it up? That is a very good question. I believe that what we're seeing is mostly Maisel's. I thought so. Yeah, um, at least the really. And then there was another. Somebody else was there too, but I don't recall who. Because uh-huh. the other two, um, uh, Paul Goldsmith and Kevin Keating, went over with the boxers. Uh-huh. They were over there earlier doing that stuff. Now, now this bit of. Um, background information um, I'm about to uh, recite was not included in the movie, but it was written about in Hugh Masekela's autobiography about the fact that there were all kinds of problems with the plane flight. And he writes, James Brown arrived late to the airport in New York with tons of his equipment because he was scheduled to continue on to Gabon after the festival. The plane was overloaded, so the pilot asked all the passengers to sit in economy class. Brown refused, protesting, I am the king much to the discomfort of the other passengers. During a stopover in Madrid, Bill Withers apparently purchased a large dagger and put it to Brown's throat, forcing him to sit in economy. And then he goes on to say that later on, James Brown continued to make a pain of himself by insisting that he be the first guy to leave the plane with uh, two beauty queens on his arms, which you capture, which you have in your film. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Again, saying, I am the but king. I- well, that, it's just funny. That's much more than I know. But one thing I do know, he was not the first off the plane. So uh, who, uh, he, you know, who wasn't there? He heard these stories. He was there, of course, in Kinshasa when they arrived. And that's my sense. But I because I have this scene where people are walking by. Well, maybe he actually is right, because maybe I took the shot from Madrid. I Did wouldn't she? want to contradict him as But yeah, that's it. It was uh, tense. None of that was on film, unfortunately. In fact, people started to talk about it once. And it was kind of like hushed up like the cameras were pushed away i really wanted to get into that but um <laughs> to your knowledge though did bill withers hold a knife to james brown's throat <laughs> i you know i've heard that story as well and uh hugh would, would know better than i but uh it's it was pretty tense it's pretty tense in this really great scene in which the uh, musicians have finally arrived in kinshasa and they're deplaning at the airport greeted by all these bands that the zaireans have assembled for them there's this atmosphere of partying and music Someone, um, you can tell me who it is, is saying, where's Masakela? Where's Masakela? That's Big Black. That's Big Black, the yeah, uh, drummer. Correct. Um, and that was my question throughout the film. Where's Masakela? <laughs> Hugh Masakela was one of the two people, along with Stuart yeah. Levine, who thought of this and drove this project, and he's nowhere in the film. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he appears in these small moments that really is as much as I basically have of him, except there was a party that wasn't used in the film um, where he was uh, improvising. Um um, he was playing with the band. So, yeah, where is it? You know, he was working. Yeah. He, you know, he was getting it 
together. And the reason why we have Stewart so prominently is because they started in New York. Like once he hit the ground, you don't really see him either. I mean, he's in the stadium with Hugh Masekela. Um, Hugh Masekela, by the way, um, in writing about it, sounds like it was for him kind of a bust because he helped organize this concert. Um, but he says Don King is the one who tied up uh, the rights to the film in you know in disputes over money for all these years, and that when um, when We Were Kings finally came out, Hugh Masekela wasn't really he says he wasn't really credited, and he sort of sounds a little bitter about the whole experience. Yeah, I think I think he is. I had a brief uh, interaction with him, and I. I've tried to do what I can do to to, to re- correct the historical record um, uh, on that because obviously he was absolutely essential. And I think part of the when we were kings, you know, because it was focusing so much on the fight, it just got distracted from that um, from the you know the historical accuracy right. of what was happening. Let's uh, let's play a little bit of music from the concert. And one thing this concert did, I think, maybe the first ever to do this was to bring together some of the greatest African-American bands with some of the greatest African bands, including uh, Miriam McCaba, uh, Franco of Zaire, Franco and the TPOK Jazz. They were considered one of the most popular bands in the history of African pop music. Le Rochereau, or Taboule as he was sometimes known, and Afrisa. Um, and I particularly like this clip of uh, Le Rochereau and Afrisa. They are really, really tight. And, and let's listen to it right now. That was Taboulé Rochereau and his band Afrisa from Zaire 74, the legendary concert that took place in Kinshasa, Zaire, in October 1974 uh, as part of a festival that accompanied the Rumble in the Jungle fight between uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Uh, it's from a new film called Soul Power, and it's by my guest Jeffrey Levy Hinty. Jeff, um, you watched a lot of concert footage, hours and hours, and you selected just a few choice bits. Uh, that must have been painful. It was painful, and the the only way that I was able to kind of uh, uh, accept that is I knew, okay, this is not just going back into the vault. Um, there's DVD extras. Hopefully, there's concert DVDs. You know, I, whether that happens or not, I don't know. But it, it allowed better. me to get through the day, because <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, how do you uh, 
how do you how do you go through any of these arts? These are all such amazing artists, and and make these decisions. But you know, I try to sort of be uh, intuitive, direct, give people a sense of the diversity of the music, and then try tried to program it so it it had it had a flow to it, and, and particularly you know the kind of contrasts and different styles, and then mm-hmm. like you come across the Bill Withers, um, "Hope Should Be Happier," and it's just such. An amazing rendition, so it's like this has to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to build it up mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. You look at, you know, Soul Power, you know, which actually wasn't the name of the movie when I began, but <laughs> I love that performance and I love like the many, the myriad ways in which that kind of resonates, you know, and the, the meanings that it takes on. So I just sort of went down that process. Right. And we should say that um, in addition to the, the music Soul Power that we heard at the beginning of the interview, uh, we get to see James Brown really at his peak, um, doing some of those patented, amazing dance moves, those slides and things, uh, splits and all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it always the, the the first time the audience sees it, there's always a gasp because it is truly amazing. It's so athletic, and he's not a young man. I assume he's on forty or something. Like yeah, that. I should do the yeah. math. Um, <laughs> and he just gives it gives us the most amazing performance. It's so perfect, and even the point there's a microphone falls over. But he catches it in a way that he integrates into his dance. If while he, doing the splits. While doing the splits. I mean, it's the... <laughs> but I think when he got on stage, in a way, it was like Muhammad Ali in the ring. Mm-hmm. It's like they had this almost supernatural ability. Like, they, they went to a completely different place. And the co- level of command uh, that they were able to exhibit and artistry is just, you know, unsurpassed. By the way, James Brown had a boxing background, so... Oh, did he? That comparison is not completely uh, well, he gratuitous. has a kind of physicality of that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he went into music. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to guess that another of your favorite performances, since you um, allowed this band to play almost an entire piece, or maybe an entire piece, the Fania All-Stars... It's actually one and a half songs. One and a half songs. Yeah, so they got... Uh, they, they had the Kimbala and then Pontadura, which is the, the percussion element at the end. They got one of the longest stretches of concert footage in yeah. that you included in the film. And this is Celia Cruz, you know, the great singer. This is Johnny Pacheco, the band leader and flutist. Yomo Toro, the guitarist. Ray Barreto, the conga player. Hector Lavoe was part of the band, although he's not featured in, the, in this yeah, clip. Just background singing. Just background <laughs> singing. You know, very famous singer. I mean, this was a super group. Yeah. Um, and we're going to hear a bit of that performance right now. That was Celia Cruz and the Fania All-Stars performing Kimbala on stage 
in Kinshasa, Zaire in October 1974. It was October, wasn't it? The end was the very end of September. It almost was October if things kept going wrong. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's amend my earlier mention of October. It was in September, though the fight itself took place in October. Yeah, it sounds right. Um, so the festival took place before the fight. Yeah, the there was a six-week interregnum. It was supposed to be, again, right next to one another. But, you know, George Foreman got cut, and they postponed the fight. And that, that drama's played out in Women Were Kings. Right. Um, so here I just give a little hint at it because it it kind of goes into that, um, uh, you know, how chaos can come from any quarter. And that's when, you know, Stuart Levine sort of holds his head. And it's like we're supposed to be making a concert, <laughs> but we're going to get all screwed up because of a fight. The, you know, it just, it, it's literally the level of absurdity. Uh, and, and then comicness is, is pretty profound. Well, I can't imagine what it would be like to put on a, any kind of music festival. But this one in particular, again, taking place in... Um, you know, dictatorship of Zaire run by Mobutu Sese Seiko um, can't have been easy. Um, it was hard to arrange funding, and you had these Liberian uh, financial backers. Yes. You had these bands and their entourages, and you had these gigantic personalities and egos. You had Don King, not necessarily an easy guy to work with. No. No. I can't imagine. <laughs> you had James Brown, who, as we said earlier, was a handful. Yes. <laughs> Muhammad Ali features <laughs> in the film. And, uh, you know, yeah, outsized personality. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, huge amounts of personality and ego. But I think, you know, it all worked. And I think uh, besides the, the, the true tension of, of getting there and the flight, you know, Bill Withers actually worked on aircraft prior to his musical career. Didn't know that. Yeah, I, I don't know if he worked in manufacturing or in maintenance or some such thing, but he had a real intimate knowledge of of uh, uh, what would happen if you overloaded an airplane <laughs> and if you didn't, you know, um, do things correctly. So I think that also heightened his uh, his um, sense of outrage. Um, and it's true, you know, James Brown was, he was the uh, first among equals. <laughs> that comes through in the film, you know, loud and clear. He's the guy seen exiting the plane with the uh, Miss Foreman and Miss Ali on each of his arms. And uh, he's the guy who's, you know, holding forth at the press conference and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But he does give um, an incandescent performance, and we're going to hear uh, a little more of that later in the interview. First, I wanted to play, though, a little bit of Muhammad Ali, who you feature a bit, although, of course, he got his turn in When We Were King, so he's not the center of this film. But here he is uh, talking about... Um, the importance of, of his, his status as a boxer. Now, God has made me bigger than all entertainers in America. God has made me bigger than all entertainers in the world. God has made me bigger than all athletes in the world. Now it's my job to whoop this man, get my title, so I can use it to help uplift the black man in America. That's why I go in the rain, with this intention. So he's saying, you know, God has made him uh, bigger than any athlete, bigger than any entertainer, uh, in order to win this fight, beat this other guy, uh, and uplift black people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the apex of his statement, it sort of becomes, it, it's a foundation of, of ego and seemingly self-aggrandizement, but where he takes it consistently is, and then I'll be in a place to create a better society, essentially, mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm, what he's saying, mm -hmm. which I find uh, quite interesting. And, uh, you know, definitely he was a, a contradictory, or I guess is a contradictory person, you know, um, in that sense. But uh, I think he absolutely meant it, and he had a really profound um, uh, um, passion for uh, social issues and, and really ending, uh, you know, racial injustice. Mm -hmm. you know. He did uh, have a tendency, though, to cast his black opponents as somehow 
not as black and not representing blacks and you know so on as both George Farman and um Joe Frazier will tell you <laughs> yeah yeah Ali got into his you know bluster and got carried away I think so and I think also you know he well whatever I'm not an expert yeah. but my sense of observing him is he really hyped himself up for a fight exactly. you know he was not a young man when he right. was coming back you oh, know oh and people thought Foreman was going to destroy him kill him yeah because yeah. i mean Foreman had dropped Frazier in two rounds um the film is full of bits of um the musicians and the organizers and um other people who had gathered there in Kinshasa talking about the importance to black consciousness you know this was 1974 going to africa for african americans was just a really big deal. In fact, a number of the musicians talk about it as a homecoming. And one clip you have here um, includes Bill Withers talking about the importance to him. So what we're coming back here with is what we left here with, plus the influences that we picked up from uh, living uh, where we've lived for the last uh, three, four hundred years or whatever, you know. So we're coming back now in the same form, but with, with other places on it. Meanwhile, they've evolved from the point where we all were when we left here. So we've evolved in one corner. They've, in, they've uh, uh, evolved in the other corner. And now we're going to come back, and we're all going to listen to each other. And I know I'm going to go home knowing something. Just somebody asked me, uh, what are you going to bring back? You're going to bring back any souvenirs? Somebody wants cloth and all like that. What I, what I want to bring back is the feeling. So we heard Bill Withers saying that... Um First of all, this is a coming together of Africans and African-Americans after a long diaspora, and that he was coming really to, to listen, to uh, absorb, and to take the feeling home with them. Yeah. Do you happen to know if that exposure of African-American musicians to African pop music or of African pop musicians to American pop music uh, influenced them? Did it change the direction of their music at all? You know, I really don't. I really don't know. I, I, the only thing I could sort of speculate on, in a somewhat informed way, is I can see in the film, like particularly Felipe Wynn of the uh, Spinners, where it had a profound personal and emotional impact. There's no, no doubt about it. I, I'm not enough of a musicologist to be able to say, oh, and from this date on, there was a, <laughs> you know, they were starting to use, uh, you know, augmented sevens, which is indicative of this type. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, absolutely, you know, again, I think the film takes a a view that is relatively sort of positive and um, uh, kind of emphasizing the, 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 you know, what was wonderful about it. And, you know, this uh, comment by Will Withers, you know, I listened to that many times. It's so simple. I mean, again, it's it's like one of his songs, you know, but it really just goes right to the core of what it's about, because you can put a lot of very complex thought and language about what the meaning of it all, but coming away with a feeling. I mean, that's just a very eloquent way to phrase it. Mm -hmm. Now, now I'm assuming that you made a conscious choice uh, at some point not to take the approach in this film that was taken in When We Were Kings, where a lot of people were interviewed looking back on the event. Yeah, the retrospectively. Retrospectively. Instead, you have included only the original footage. You let it tell the story. You you don't talk to anybody who participated looking back. Correct. Uh, why? Well, it's several reasons. The, the high-minded reason is that uh, I felt that with the strength of the material, there was an amazing opportunity to sort of construct this world 
this film, which would reflect the world at that time, and to allow people to just become totally immersed in it. And my my true my belief and feeling is that as soon as you start to put retrospective elements in it, you sort of break that magic, and it's a different kind of movie. Um, so that's the high-minded reason. The the less uh, enlightened reason is that it would be too expensive to try to interview people, <laughs> and I didn't, didn't have the money. Um, so I put that aside. But I really, the art form of verite documentary, filmmaking, particularly of that time, is something which I adore, You know, whether it's Maisel's or Barbara Koppel or uh, Frederick Weitzman and, and, and many, many others. And you don't have that opportunity very often because mm-hmm. the what was being portrayed was so powerful in its own right and so intelligible in a fundamental way. And also just the brilliance of the cinematography. I mean, without one or the other, you couldn't do it. So, um, Did you, though, um, out of curiosity or as background research, talk to many of the surviving participants? Not many. I spoke with Stuart Levine. Um, and I've had brief sort of interactions with, with several others. But Stuart was and Leon were my sort of informants. But I learned very early on, you know, I was an editor, and part of the discipline of editing is uh, if it's not in the footage, it doesn't exist. You know, there's like a really fundamental belief. And that has some pretty profound uh, ramifications. Um, so in a way, I didn't want to know too much, you know. I, I knew some of the stories, but you try to actually put them out of your mind because then you begin to delude yourself. And you put a scene up and say, well, don't you know what's happening here? This is a, <clears throat> a very pivotal and important moment because da-da-da. And nobody can see it because, you know, it's it's not being informed by what is actually present in the film and the sound recordings. So, um, yeah, and I, you know, the, and the fact is, is that um, also once you open up that retrospective element, it's like, where do you stop? You know, with Kings, it was very clear because it was about Muhammad Ali and about the fight. So it was very closed. Um, but in this film, you know, to to give it justice, you'd have to know where every band went. You can't just have you James Brown and B.B. King, you know. You would have to know, you know, how things developed in Zaire. It would have been a very, been the many series, I like to say. Um, I don't want to insult you with comparisons to other movies. <laughs> this one has no comparison, but... <laughs> insult away. But the one that's probably going to be made is to Wattstacks, oh. I suspect. This is the uh, documentary made about the uh, the concert that Stax Records put on in, in Watts in Los Angeles in 1970. I think it was right after, maybe 75. I 75. love that film. Yeah, and it, it's it's all original footage of these great African-American acts along with ordinary people talking. Yeah, those about. interviews. Yeah. Yeah, I love the film Watts Stax. And in fact, it's the uh, those interstitials. Um, almost well, they made me almost cry because I did, really didn't have the equivalent of that, and I you really didn't have just, a Richard Pryor, for instance, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and actually, Roderick Young, one of the DPs, was one of the main DPs there. He actually that's lives right. in yeah. he lives in L.A. Um, yeah, that's it. Was a very inspirational film, along with Soul to Soul, which is another uh, wonderful film, which was almost lost to to history, but it's been somewhat restored, or at least the version I saw. Um, and then, of course, you know. The, the great music, Monterey Pop and mm-hmm. Woodstock and just the classic. Although I have to yeah. say, I think I think the footage in your film is better than Woodstock or Monterey Pop. Well, you know, the interesting thing is um, they learn from those films. And, you know, they had very limited cameras and limited recordings, so you can only do so much. And same with Soul to Soul. Like, maybe they were shooting two or three cameras, and you get boxed in. So you have, you know, there's whole shots in Soul to Soul that are out of focus. I mean, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. going on for a minute. Mm-hmm. And you know it's the only shot they had of the performance. Unfortunately, right. Right. you know every, they, they were learned from those experiences, and they had the money, 
And they really just sort of went all out. I mean, this was uh, four cameras, eight cameras, eight cameras. Now you don't see the other ones very four, often. Four pretty accomplished. Four main DVDs. guys, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a, there may have even been more cameras. It was, it's really hard to determine. But um, yeah, it really gave a lot of um, lot of opportunity for cutting. And really, the thing that I like most about it, though, um, which probably was annoying to the audience, is that the camera people are right on stage with them yes so you get this level of intimacy and and expression that um is really unmatched because you can't do it today if you do a long shot with a telephoto lens you feel that and there's a there's a separation with it and a flatness um and of course then nobody would shoot a concert so they'd have camera people on stage because the audience would be outraged but um it was a combination of um this is just way things were done and kind of things were somewhat chaotic you know in fact they all wore white t-shirts you know on stage <laughs> they didn't even get the memo about uh, dressing um but it all worked out brilliantly well and i kind of integrated them into the film it's kind of an homage i mean there's that one shot in half reset where you you're looking at the dp who's down on the floor and just pre- his pretzeled up legs he's a, sort of a human uh, uh, a human camera crane roderick I'm doing this brilliant shot from below, and then you have the shot from behind, Kevin Keating, um, and the interaction. I just They're shooting these two incredible dancers that are uh, accompanying Le Rochereau as he sings with this band. Yeah. How many hours of footage, originally, did you have to work with? I had about 125 hours of footage. What was it like just sitting there and watching that, probably over and over again? Yeah, well, it was both exhilarating, as you can imagine, and some boring. As you probably can imagine, there was a lot of, there were a lot of moments where you were um, uh, just sort of waiting, biding your time, and trying to get through it. But needless to say, the gems, you know, within the, uh, you know, within everything else, were just more than compensated. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for your time, and uh, let's go out with another clip from the concert itself. Right. Who else but James Brown? Well, it's a pleasure being on your show, and uh, absolutely, you can never have enough James Brown. This man will make your liver quiver. This man will make your bladder splatter. This man will freeze your knees. If you will, let's all welcome the world's godfather of soul, soul brother number one, James Brown! James Brown!
Soul Power, the movie, opens in theaters next week. Let's listen to one more musical performance from the film, one mentioned by Jeff Levy Hinty in our interview, Bill Withers singing Hope She'll Be Happier. Maybe the lateness of the Makes me seem This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And uh, to finish the show off today, we're going to stay with the topic of music history, and we're going to stay in the region of the Congo, formerly Zaire. While putting together that segment that we just heard on the Zaire 74 concert, I found myself listening to a new CD by the Occidental Brothers Dance Band International. They're a group of American and Ghanaian musicians reviving and updating classic African genres like highlife and palm wine music. And one song on that album that particularly caught my ear was this. It's a rendition of a Congolese musical treasure, a song called Masanga. Like a lot of African music fans, I knew it from its original version by the late singer-guitarist Jean Bosco Mwenda. Here he is in the first recorded version of the song. Nalina Mwenda ndia yetu jadovile Ende ya piti ndia yetu ya buluo Ende ya mwambie baba bosko anakwenda Wendo mwambie mtoto yule ya bayeke Wende umambie mwenye singo ya upanga that recording was made about 1950. A second recording made around the same time showcased Mwenda's intricate guitar work, minus the vocals. 
After that, Masanga took on a life of its own. It swept across Africa, played in bars and dance halls by dozens of bands. In the 1960s and 70s, Masanga drew the attention of American folk guitarists. They liked its elegant structure and beautiful finger-picking technique. Jean Bosco Muenda appeared at the Newport Folk Festival, reportedly on the invitation of Pete Seeger. The song was even picked up by classical guitarists like John Williams. Well, I've always wanted to learn more about this lovely and seemingly deathless song, so I went as close to the source as I could get. I called up folk blues musician Elijah Wald. He actually met and studied with Jean Bosco Muenda in Zaire and learned Masanga from the master. We're going to hear a little of Elijah's version of Masanga, and then we'll hear from Elijah himself. How did you first hear this song, Masanga? Well, I actually heard Masanga because when I was in high school, my high school was right next to the public library, and they happened to have a really good collection of records in those days. Those were LPs, and that included, I think it was volume two of Guitars of Africa, the 12-inch LP, and that had Masanga on it. The whole collection was put out by a guy named Hugh Tracy. And Hugh Tracy was a musicologist in South Africa who actually put together the, the Library of African Music in Grahamstown. But also, he was financing his, his field collecting by working as a talent scout for Galatone Records, which is the big South African record label. And Bosco's stuff is an example of... I, that was probably his most successful discovery. Uh, uh, he was uh, Hugh Tracy. I was going to say is, is maybe to African music what Alan Lomax was to American folk music, um, preserving and recording uh, all over Africa during the early part of the 20th century, um, getting stuff that nobody else got. Well, not the early part of the 20th century. I mean, he was recording in the early 50s. <laughs> gotcha, mid 20th century. Yeah. Now, now, how did Hugh Tracy, who is traveling around? Uh, Southern and Central Africa, uh, recording artists uh, of, of various kinds and, and signing them, I guess, to this record label. How did he discover and meet uh, Jean Bosco Mwenda? Typically, the way that any um, record producer going in to do these sorts of recordings does it 
is you just travel around and go into town and say, who are the good musicians here? Um, I mean, that's how Alan Lomax did it. Alan Lomax actually um, did it exactly that way. But some of the record scout people like Ralph Peer would also go down south in the United States and put a little ad in the local newspaper. Or you'd go down to the local radio station and go on the air and say, I'm going to be in town for a few days. Um, and as they say, the Bush Telegraph, you know, word of mouth carries very quickly the fact that there's a record scout in town. And Hugh Tracy, in this case, was in, uh, I guess, southeastern um, Congo at the time. It was the Belgian Congo. Right. It was what was uh, Katanga province, it was known at that point. And he met up with Jean Bosco Mwenda, who I imagine had maybe some local recognition, but certainly wasn't uh, widely known beyond that region. Exactly. And recorded this. And by and by, that song came to the attention of a lot of people far and wide. Oh, that record traveled all over Africa. Masanga became hugely popular all up and down West Africa. There actually are stories that there were places where it was just known by the, the number on the record label. <laughs> and because Bosco was recording in Swahili, his records could sell all over East Africa. Uh-huh. And the East Africans had never heard anything like this. This was a style that had been influenced heavily by Cuban records, like all of the um, Congolese music. There was a lot of Cuban influence. And when they heard these records in Kenya, they just went wild. And so they brought Bosco to Kenya in the late 50s, 58 or 59. He was brought to Kenya by an aspirin company called Aspro to be a radio artist for them. When was it exactly that, that you happened on this music? And, um, and I would have heard it around, what, 74? 74. Thereabouts. And um, this inspired you? You know, the thing for me about pretty much all of that African style, but Bosco is, is for me the grand master of it, is it sounds so much like the style of people like Mississippi John Hurt, the older African-American style, only he plays these rhythms that the African-American guitarists never played. I mean, African-American in the sense of United States, outside of New Orleans, the basic rhythm is what we think of as a swing rhythm. It's not that sort of clave rhythm that is very common in Cuba and also very common in the Congo. And Bosco had worked out a way to play those clave rhythms in fingerstyle guitar, um, which I just found unbelievably exciting. So you were quite interested in this piece, and ultimately... Um it caused you to, to make your way over to what was uh, then Zaire. Yeah, what happened for me was um, John Lowe uh, put out a book that was just what its title says. It was called Shaba Diary, and it was just essentially his diary of studying in Shaba province with Jean Bosco and, and Los Darbello and Edward Masengo. And, you know, it's crazy. It was just like the guys who rediscovered the old bluesmen, um, it was only 30 years after Bosco had made his records, but I, it had never occurred to me that he was still alive and one could just go there and find him. <laughs> so within relatively few months of that, um, I just got on a plane to Zimbabwe, which was the easiest place to fly into, and actually then went down to Grahamstown and talked to Andrew Tracy, and he had an address for Bosco. So I wrote Bosco a letter and didn't hear anything back and went to... Lubumbashi and arrived about six weeks after I mailed the letter, but the letter hadn't yet arrived. It arrived shortly after I got there. Um, but he was very, very welcoming. 
and I just would go over, I forget, twice or three times a week to his house and have a guitar lesson and have lunch. And And what year was this again when you studied with him? Uh, that was 89. 89. And was he happy to share his guitar secrets with you? Um, he was very happy to share his guitar secrets with foreigners, like uh-huh. and John Lowe. Uh, I think with the thought that it could lead to future European or American tours or recording or whatever, he was not at all willing to share his guitar secrets with the young locals. So in in a sense, you are, um, oh, I don't know, you're the keeper of a a kind of precious legacy with the knowledge you have of how Jean Bosco played. Well, I wouldn't exaggerate it. I mean, (laughs) I studied with him, John Lowe studied with him, but also Bosco's son, Didier Muenda, um, carried on the tradition. He just died this year. Now, now you sing a version of Masanga um, that uh, includes the singing, which is, is kind of unusual uh, among, I think, Americans who, who cover Masanga. Yeah, I enjoy singing. I mean, the lyric is very funny, which I had not realized. I mean, one of the funny things about African music is we hear somebody like Bosco, and it sounds lovely and romantic, and then he would translate the words, and they were almost never lovely and romantic. <laughs> And the lyric of Masanga, the first verse, says, um, if you're going by the town of Jarotville, go see Bosco and tell him to go home to bed. (laughs) And the second verse says, a woman without a man is like a bicycle without a headlamp. (laughs) And I mean, when I'm playing the tune in in concert, I always tell the story. It, It literally is true. It took me about three weeks before I could bring myself to say, this makes no sense to me. What does that mean? And Bosco said, oh, well, it's very simple. It uh, means she will go fine in the daytime, but she may go wrong at night. (laughs) Now, he had never heard the expression, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Not as far as I know. (laughs) If you see Bosco, tell him to to go to bed. In other words, uh, he he stayed up too too late uh, carousing or something like that? Exactly. You know, he was a bar guitarist. He used to play in the cafes. And Uh so this would clearly be a funny a funny line to use when you're playing out in the cafes that in the U.S. Is, is this, tell me if this is a spurious uh, observation, but when I hear Masanga played, and not just by classical musicians like John Williams, but uh, in general, I hear a kind of classical structure to it, a kind of counterpoint that almost reminds me of Bach transcriptions for guitar. You know, I know exactly what you mean when you say that it sounds classical. I had the same reaction when I heard it. I think we're simply wrong. (laughs) Um, I mean, what it sounds like is, if you've ever listened to the Cuban Trio Matamoros, the Trio Matamoros is really where that comes out of, and it's an attempt to do that with one guitar. I mean, they would do that with one guy playing lead and one guy playing the backup. And it's an attempt to put both of those lines on one guitar. Ah, so you get what feels like counterpoint is two melodic lines on one guitar. Well, he, I mean, to be frank, Bosco never plays two melodic lines at once. What he'll do is he'll have either a regular bass and he'll be playing something over it on treble, or then he will switch off and play a monotone on the treble and carry the, the melody on the bass. He never carries both at once. One or the other is always playing something regular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's very unusual um, outside of Africa, and in fact, even in Africa, Bosco is one of the few who does it, to do that thing of switching to having the treble carry the, the pulse 
mm-hmm. and have the melody happen over on the thumb. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that switching back and forth that makes it sound like, like in fact, he's doing counterpoint. Uh-huh. Jean Bosco Mwenda died in 1990, is that right? Yeah, he died shortly after I was there in a particularly stupid car accident. Zaire, as it was then, was a Belgian um, colony, so people drove on the right side of the road, and it was right on the border with Zambia, which was an English colony, so people drove on the left side of the road, and he was on his way to the hotel he owned down in Zambia, or down on the Zambian border, and a Zambian who had forgotten to switch over was on the wrong side of the road, and they had an accident, and he was killed. Oh, boy. Do you happen to know if Bosco was aware uh, before he died that Masanga had achieved a kind of, well, I'm going to say immortality. It's now been covered by a lot of different musicians, including some very famous ones. Um, Was he aware of that? You know, that's an interesting question. Bosco was certainly aware that he had an international reputation. I think that he was probably less aware that the whole world outside of his area, wanted one song. Masanga had not been necessarily his biggest hit in the Congo. And he was intensely aware of having had lots of hits. But that was certainly one of the main ones. I mean, that was certainly, you know, he knew that both John Lowe and I had come all the way from Europe and America because of Masanga. And he knew that it was because of Masanga that he had been brought to the Newport Folk Festival. So he certainly knew that the foreigners liked that one. (laughs) Elijah Wald. He's a musician and prolific music writer. His latest book is How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an alternative history of American popular music. And finally today, I'd like to go back to that latest incarnation of Masanga from the Occidental Brothers Band. The band's leader is guitarist Nathaniel Braddock. He started out in alternative rock and got interested in African music in the 1980s. And like Elijah Wald, he discovered Masanga on a collection of old Hugh Tracy recordings in a public library. He fell in love with it and eventually came up with this arrangement for his band. Here's Nathaniel describing it. I worked out my arrangement of it, which is based, you know, very clearly upon Wendell's themes. So I taught it to our saxophone player, Greg Ward, and then... Kofi Cromwell, our, our trumpet player from Ghana, came in with a wonderful, uh, wonderful harmony, sort of African-style horn harmony with it. And it, we eventually blew it into a, a large arrangement with a full ensemble. I had the bass player playing uh, essentially the low voice from the guitar part. The thing about the tune is there's so much room for it to breeze in there. We, we open it up then for some solos, and we have uh, our friend Andrew Bird plays violin on it. And Andrew and Greg, just they, they, they play a really moving kind of dialogue in there. It's, it's like two contemporary solos, and then with, with me playing as well, it's, a, it's like a, a three-point polyphonic improvisation and meditation on the theme that I, you know, you, you can't predict it's going to happen, but it's really special when it does happen. When 
African music devotees come in and hear us and know the song, they come running up immediately, either when we're playing or, or as soon as we're done, and are, are raving about it because anyone that's been touched by that tune, um, you know, it makes an indelible mark. They want to immediately talk about our interpretation and how much the song means to them. And um, people that come oftentimes will come running up and say, what was that song? How can I get it? And we, we have an opportunity to talk about its history. Having now loved this song and then adapted it and, and given it, you know, I guess yet another... Um, another life for people who are just discovering it. Do you, do you have anything you can say about what makes a song, some songs, last forever? It's hard to say what will make a song you know, live beyond its, its, its short-term immediate life and what makes something, uh, makes a tune able to last the ages and continue to delight people. One thing about this tune, that for guitar players, Immediately intoxicating because of just the way the instrument speaks. You know, I think the Africans have always done with the guitar something that it was it was made to do, but which didn't exist in, in the European tradition. Why the song is so compelling for for listeners other than guitar players? I can't say. You know, there's something about music that really defies definition. And when it connects emotionally, that's, that's something special. Nathaniel Braddock and the Occidental Brothers International Dance Band. Their new CD is Odo Sombra. And a note on today's show. When I decided to pair the two features that we just heard, the one on the Zaire 74 Festival and the other on the song Masanga, I thought the only real connection between the two is that they both involve the Congo and they both involve musical subjects. But then, just yesterday, before I broadcast this show, I learned out of the blue that apparently Jean Bosco Mwenda actually performed in the Zaire 74 concert. He didn't make it into the film Soul Power, but maybe into the DVD extras. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Back next week.